typically on Reformation days in the past, I have sometimes highlighted the life of a reformer and kind of talked a little bit about sort of their theological contributions and unfortunately not going to have a chance to do that today, but we are going to go back to Matthew, our study of the Gospel of Matthew, back to Matthew chapter 21, and you can be finding that in your Bibles. I think I told uh, you that we have been gardeners this uh, summer and have been growing a number of things. We even had a watermelon, a couple of watermelon vines uh, growing that had just been perfectly placed, um, had all the right conditions, had plenty of sunshine, uh, plenty of attention. We gave them great water and, uh, you know, just great care. And uh, then eventually one of them uh, sort of got plump and green and sounded great. And so we were all ready to harvest that thing and brought it up, just uh, ready to dive into it. We cut it open and it was mush, just a disappointment. Such an illustration of the experience that some people have with religious life. They have uh, on the outside all the greenness, all the sort of lush color, all the things that might give the appearance of good fruit. But on closer examination, when you look inside, they're useless rubbish, just rotten to the core. Well, in Matthew chapter 21 and in chapter 22 and in chapter 23, Jesus is having this conversation with the religious leaders of Israel, trying to help them to understand that. That element, that dynamic of how putrid someone can be, even though they have all the sort of outward religious trappings. This is all happening, you may remember, on his final day of public ministry. After three years of of traveling all over Israel and teaching in all kinds of towns and villages and working all kinds of miracles. It's all come down to this, to this day, to these conversations with these people. You remember how he got there. He arrived in Jerusalem that week, his final week of his life before the crucifixion. And and he entered into the, the city with great fanfare on the colt of a donkey and everyone throwing their palm branches down. He went in, he looked around the temple, kind of surveyed everything, went back out to the village only to return the next day where he, he violently sort of flushed out all of the money changers and all the people selling pigeons. He chased out all the people who were there for all the corrupt reasons. He cleansed the temple and for one day reestablished the solemn and sincere worship of the Lord in the temple as it was meant to be. And now we find ourselves on the following day, on the Wednesday of his last week. And he has come back to the temple again and he's teaching. And it's a day of confrontation. It's a day of questions. It's a day of people challenging him over and over again, particularly from the religious establishment. And you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at one of these challenges in verses 23 through 27, where they were asking him to validate his authority. Why, what authority are you doing all these things? And Jesus, rather than just directly answering them, he gives them a question in return. And he says, I'll answer you if you first answer me. John the Baptist was his baptism from heaven or from men. 
course, they sort of talked among themselves, realizing that if they said it was from men, that all the people would get angry and would stone them because everyone revered John. And if they said it was from heaven, they would be trapped because Jesus knew that they had not accepted John. And so they just said they wouldn't answer. And Jesus in return said, I'm not going to answer you. Well, today we come to verse 28, immediately following that, which apparently is the extension of the same conversation, the same group of people, seemingly the same subject, because from verse 28 through 32, Jesus continues to talk about their response to John the Baptist. But this time he does it with a story, with a parable that focuses on that response, on what a insincere and, uh, and, and what a lack of response is versus a true, genuine response of re- repentance. And it all comes by way of this parable, which he presents to them and he asks them to make their judgment on. He says in verse 28, what do you think? You, you, you give me your opinion. You give me your judgment on this little story. A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. And afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is um, obviously a a story about a family farm, these two sons who respond in different ways. But it is really a story about responses to the gospel message, as I said. And it's not exhaustive. These aren't all the responses that are possible. In fact, back in Matthew 13, Jesus gave another parable about four soils that represented four different kinds of responses. Some people who are just hard-hearted and just dismiss the message out of hand and other people who uh, give sort of superficial responses and even the genuine. So, so Jesus has done similar things in the past, but here he's trying to highlight the difference between two basic responses. Sort of the, the self-righteous or superficial response of some people who want to make an appearance of compliance while in their hearts they're really resistant to God versus people who initially seem resistant, but then they eventually demonstrate a true heart, a true heart that believes and obeys. And, and by looking at this, what we really gain, what we really sort of learn is an incredible insight into what true saving faith is, what true repentance uh, involves in its full scope, what genuine true responses to the gospel must be. It, it offers us two basic images representing these two responses. And the first one, in verses 28 and 29, we might just call regret after brokenness. Regret after brokenness. That's the, 
That's the basic picture of this first son. He is picturing someone who by all outward appearances has no interest in religious matters, no, uh, no interest in the gospel. And, and he, he's presented as this, uh, this child on a farm who, whose father is working the fields apparently on a regular basis. This son, these two boys don't seem to have regular duties. They, they, they don't know that they're supposed to go out each morning and work. But on this particular day, although they're not regularly in the field, on this particular day, their father comes to them to ask for help. Maybe there was some urgent sort of demand. Maybe it was harvest season or whatever it might be. And, and we don't really know any other details about them. We don't know whether one of them was older or whether one of them was younger or anything about their background. None of that is really the point at this juncture. We are just simply told that the son is asked to go out to the field and his initial response is not good. No, I will not do that. Again, that's all that we have. We don't have any kind of description of his facial expressions, any kind of uh, understanding of his attitude. Was he apathetic? Was he defiant? Was he resentful? Uh, We don't have any of that, apparently because it's not important to the point of the story, but also because this son probably represents all of those things. It doesn't really matter what the attitude, what the emotions are behind it. He represents all number of people who simply have no initial interest in the things of God. The point is not to diagnose the particular emotions. It's simply to represent the appearance of rejection. The uh, outward display of delay. The appearance maybe of defiance. But of course the real surprise here is that the father tolerates all this. He doesn't fly into a rage. He doesn't try to coerce this guy. He doesn't make sort of demands. There's no sense that he, he sat down and gave the guy some long lecture or any of those things. You're, the image that you're left with is that he just made his request to the son, and when the son refused to comply, the father quietly gave him space to sit and to ponder how he had treated his father. And the son does that. He eventually does reflect on his attitude and on his, on his lack of response. And Jesus says afterward he changed his mind, which is a reminder of how many people do respond to the gospel. Their initial response is not encouraging. It's not ideal. We often write them off because of it. But with time, they reflect on things deeply and seriously and they begin to ponder what they heard or how they responded. I've told you in the past, that was me. I was one of those people. I I vividly remember walking the streets of Pensacola, Florida and having someone on the corner preaching the gospel and me and my buddies mocking and and uh, sort of sneering and saying terrible things about that guy and just yucking it up until we got into our vehicle that night and driving back to my town, sitting in the back of that, I pondered. And I started to think. 
about what I had heard and how I had acted. Jesus is saying that's the way some people are. They're not initially interested in the things of the gospel. He even applies this to tax collectors and prostitutes eventually whose life of sin make us assume that they're far from religious interest, far from the truth of the Bible, and they might assume that they are also far, maybe too far, because of the way they've lived, that God really wouldn't have any interest in welcoming them. And so even when they are confronted with religious truth, they might respond with skepticism and coldness and suspicion. But on further reflection, they resonate. They ponder and they think about what they heard. This is what the first son represents. He, he initially dismisses the command or the call of the father, but then he has a change of heart. The word is metamelomai. Literally, it just means to change, but it often carries the connotation of some emotional burden, some emotional regret. In fact, many times it's translated regret in the Scripture. So he regrets how things have unfolded. He, he thinks back to his earlier behavior, and he, go, he wishes now that he could go back and do things different. He wishes he could go back to that time with his father like people wish they could go back to that season, to that year, to that event. They wish they could go back and they wish that they could do things differently. They regret. They regret what they have done. This is how he felt. He reflected on everything. He reflected on how he responded to the messages he had heard. He regrets even how he responded to the gentleness of his father. And so he changes his mind and he actually heads out to the field to do what his father asked him to do. This is a picture of repentance. This is how people sometimes respond to the God. This is how God wants people to respond to the gospel. This is a repentance that leads to a change in behavior. And the focus here is really the feeling of regret and remorse and sorrow To get the full picture of repentance, you kind of have to take that word metamelomai and you have to combine it with the other common word for repentance in the Scripture, metanoia, which is literally a change of attitude, a change of thinking. And you put those two things together and you realize the full picture of of repentance, metanoia uh, and metamelomai. There's a change of attitude about the way that you used to to live the way that you used to think about sin and that change of heart uh, now issues in the way that you think about your past. It issues in a change of behavior for your future. And there's really no better expression of this than in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul's writing a letter to the church there and he recounts how he had written a previous letter dealing with issues of sin in their life, a letter which he says made them grieve. And he says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, For even if I did make you grieve with my previous letter, I don't regret it. By the way, same word there, metamelomai. I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered loss, no loss through us, he says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. What what does he mean? What does all that mean? Repentance or or sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. What does all that mean? Well, what he means is that you leave your old life behind. With this kind of repentance, you leave your old life behind and you don't regret it. You don't regret leaving it. You don't regret the old lifestyle that you left behind. You don't regret leaving your old habits behind. You don't regret leaving your old associations behind. You don't regret leaving behind the filthy uh, uh, language or the coarse kind of crude talk. You don't regret leaving behind the anger and the malice and the lust and the greed. You don't regret leaving any of that stuff behind. You're happy to leave all that stuff behind because you've had a change of heart and a change of attitude about it all. That's the level of your repentance. You're not sitting in church or you're not sitting in Bible study or not, you know, sitting in a prayer time or a family worship or whatever it might be and sulking because you don't get to go out and do all the same old stuff with all the same old friends. You're not resentful and bitter that someone's forcing you to leave it behind or someone's peering over your shoulder to see if you are. You're not resentful about any of that stuff. You're actually happy. You don't regret any of that stuff. You see, it's not outward change in order just to please other people. This is not outward compliance to get people off your case while you're still inwardly craving and plotting how to get back to your life of sin. This is true godly sorrow, godly grief, grief for how you used to behave and genuine change of attitude about the way you think about all that sin. This is what happened to this son. This is what happened to this first child. His father didn't force him to go into the the field. He wasn't going out there against his will. Apparently, the father didn't want him in the field if he wasn't going to be out there willingly. He didn't want him out there working with bitterness and resentment and all that stuff going in his heart, so he wasn't going to force him. If he wouldn't go willingly, the father didn't want him to go. But then, once the dad is gone, the son starts to think. And he thinks about how his father has treated him. All that he's given him, all the kindness has come. And he has a change of heart and he decides to go willingly. This is Repentance without regret. By the way, it's the exact opposite of the second son, who is the second image here of a response to the gospel. This is what we might call in verses 30 uh, through 32, resistance after boastfulness. So if the first one is sort of repentance after brokenness, this is resistance after boastfulness. Because the second son represents that person who only pretends to comply, but secretly schemes of ways to go out and continue resisting God's commands. Jesus says that this father went to the other son and said the same thing, that is to go out into the field. 
And he answered, I go, sir. And in the uh, original language of the Greek, it's very emphatic. He uses the first person uh, pronoun here, which is often unexpressed, but here it is expressed, ego. I, as in me, as in not that, not like that guy, not like that brother over there. And I'm sure along the way he does what always happens when you have these kind of sibling rivalries. He doesn't miss an opportunity to make a comparison. Uh, unlike my brother over there, who you know is not helpful, uh, my brother over there, who's always difficult to deal with, unlike him, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. He even uses the respectful title, sir. He uses all the, all the proper and respectful language, all the right terminology, all the right words. Of course, making sure that he gets all the credit as well. And just like the uh, first brother who said no initially to God, this brother represents the person who very early on says yes to God, loudly, triumphantly says yes, but secretly, they're still craving and plotting how to hold on to their sin. There's not inner regret If anything, there's inner resentment. There's ultimately resistance to holiness. This is the person who claims to follow God, claims to love God. They want the recognition at least for following God. They want to be known as a believer, but in their heart, they're not surrendered to God. In their heart, they're constantly looking for ways to cover up their sinful choices and to join in with the worldly crowd. This is the person whose response to the gospel is just verbal. It doesn't touch their heart in a serious way. It certainly doesn't change their behavior. And so by way of contrast here, we get a full picture of what real repentance looks like. We get a real picture of what God wants when it comes to a gospel response. And in, 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 in this picture, we see that repentance must touch the entire person. It must touch your mind and your heart and your will. Or in the classic theological formulation, it must involve notitia, knowledge, ascensus, which is assent, and fiducia, which is trust. There's some good Latin words on Reformation Day for you there. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Those are the constituent elements of saving faith. You have to, first of all, you have to know certain things. You have to know certain truths. You can't just have this nebulous faith. That's what the world, you know, says all the time. It really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. Or, you know, you watch your Disney show and, you know, they got all these songs that all, if it's only, everything's possible if you just believe, but they never actually tell you what you have to believe. Well, the Bible says you have to believe certain things. You have to know them. There are certain facts that are essential for you to understand. They're objects in which you place your faith. And those objects are clear when you look into Scripture. This isn't just some superstitious feeling that you are supposed to generate. You're supposed to believe that Jesus not only existed, but that He 
lived a righteous life, that he died an innocent death, and that God raised him from the dead. Jesus says it in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Or John 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have eternal life in His name. Or John 10, 9, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Or he says, the writer of Hebrews eleven six, Hebrews eleven six, without faith it's impossible to please God, for the one coming to God must believe that He exists and is the rewarder of those who seek Him. So, the first element of saving faith is these basic facts, this basic knowledge that you must have an understanding and an accepting of certain doctrines that's elemental to saving faith. But along with that, along with those basic facts, there must also be assent, or we might say acknowledgement. In other words, there must be a conviction that the, the things, the truths that you have learned from the Scripture are, in fact, applicable to you. There, there is there's a knowledge and then there's an acknowledgement of your need for them. I have the knowledge and not the conviction would be about as good as just knowing some nursery rhymes. I mean, you can say them all day long and sing them to yourself, but they don't really have any bearing on you because you haven't acknowledged that there's any application of the things that you're singing. It's entirely possible to have knowledge and to know all kinds of facts about the Bible and about religion and about church, but not assent to them. To not actually believe that they apply to you. So you must acknowledge their necessity. Jesus said it at one point to the religious leaders, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. In other words, if you acknowledged the things that Moses was saying applied to you, then you would acknowledge what I'm saying applies to you. For he wrote about me, Jesus says, but if you do not believe his writings or acknowledge the message of his writings, how will you believe my words? Or 1 John 5, whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So you can hear all of those things from the Bible. You can acknowledge all of those Bible stories and all of the facts about the Bible. But then if you don't think that they are the truth that should govern your life, you're making God out to be a liar. So faith, it demands knowledge of these facts. And it also demands acknowledgement of their necessity. But then the final point of that is fiducia. It involves trust. You, you, you not only acknowledge them, but you put your trust in them. There are some people who hear all that. They 
Uh, they, they hear about the Bible. They hear about religion. They might even acknowledge that it works for other people. They know Christians. They've seen the power of God in the life of other people. They see how the gospel has brought light and life into the hearts and homes of other people. They see God working in other people. But for whatever reason, they can't bring themselves to put their trust in those same things. They're missing that final element of repentance. Robert Raymond says the sinner must cognitively and volitionally transfer all reliance for righteousness and cleansing away from himself and his own resources in complete and total abandonment to Christ. That, that's, the, that's the full picture of repentance. Without that element of trust, your so-called faith is no different than the demon's who the Scripture tell us know God. They know God as one. They know Jesus is the Messiah. They know all of those things. They just won't put their trust in them. But Paul describes himself as one, he says, who believes in Him for eternal life. That, that's the element of trust. Like, like Abraham in Genesis 15:6, he believed God and God credited him with righteousness. He trusted God. And John 1 says this, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, who trust in his name, to them he gives the right to become the children of God, to all those who believe in his name. So the one who hears the truth, who acknowledges the truth, and then transfers his belief and his trust to that truth, to them, God gives the right to become the children of God. Now this parable gives us the full picture of this. Because there's on one hand, there's one person who just gives sort of the verbal assent to the Father. By his words, he is... He is acknowledging the Father's right to make these commands. He's acknowledging that the Father owns the field and the Father can, uh, uh, can, can ask for this from His Son. But in His heart, He isn't really transferring the reliance of His life or the trust to those words. But then the first Son, who doesn't give verbal assent to begin with, he won't even acknowledge his father's command. He won't admit that he has a duty to go into the field. He doesn't want to acknowledge any of that stuff. But then later, he reflects on everything he heard and he regrets. He regrets how he responded. And he realizes and he agrees that he has a duty. And so he eventually acts on what he has heard. This is the full expression of of saving faith, even if it's delayed, even if it comes a little bit later in your life than in the life of others. And you look around and you see other people who seem to be saying all the right things from the very beginning. They've always said all the right things. They've always had all the praise of all the people around them. And you haven't. You've resisted. And Jesus is saying, 
doesn't matter. This is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this person who, regardless of their initial reluctance and regardless of their sort of initial resistance, they reach the place of brokenness so that they repent. Now, Jesus applies all this right here in the text. He replies it in verse 31 and 32 to these religious leaders. He said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. That is to say, he's not saying they're all going to make it, but he's saying that they're closer than you are. They're going to get to the kingdom before you do. For John, he says, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So these tax collectors and these prostitutes, they, they might have been reluctant at some point, but eventually they did respond in a full expression of regret and a full expression of repentance, and they believed. Now, it's difficult for us to comprehend how shocking this would have been for this group listening to Jesus that particular day because we don't really have these categories or at least we don't think in these ways. In our modern context, when we think about people who are in prostitution, we have a tendency to focus on the social conditions that might have driven them into that. We look at uh, those women who are in those kinds of of, uh of sex activity and sex trades, we look at them as victims of their circumstances, maybe sexually exploited by others. But in the ancient world, that kind of perspective was unheard of. Prostitutes were looked at as always willingly choosing their lifestyle, and they were looked at as preying on their clients. They weren't people who had been corrupted. They were the people corrupting others, drawing them into temptation and ruining their lives and their homes. And of course, tax collectors, they might have been in a different end of the spectrum, but they were in the minds of Jews just as corrupt and just as vicious if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that these, these were some of the most despised people in Israel. They weren't allowed in the synagogues or the temple because they were so despised. They represented a, a class of people who were so corrupted and so driven by greed that they devoured everyone around them heartlessly. The whole system was sort of set up to be corrupt in some sense. Rome had all these financial needs and so they taxed everything. They had all these taxes, but they didn't have the manpower to collect them, so they would just take sections of the Roman Empire and they would bid them out, territories, states, kind of like in our parlance. parlance. And someone would come along, some wealthy person would come along and they would bid for that entire territory. They would win the bid and then their Their job at that point was to to go collect all the taxes to recoup their bid. But they themselves didn't have the time or the interest or the energy to go do that. So they would then find others below them that they would receive bids on and they would farm out the duties to lower men on the uh, totem pole 
And that system worked its way out until you had local tax collectors who had put up some sort of money and then were given the right to go recoup that money by collecting taxes. But the problem was there was no regulation, there was no enforcement. And so when they went to tax people, they asked for all kinds of exorbitant sums that were beyond the legal limits. They extorted people. They took advantage of people. They berated people. They threatened people. They were um, worse than what people might think of as modern-day collection agencies. And, uh, and so they were despised. Not only that, they were in league with the Romans who were the occupying power. And so they were looked at not only as greedy and corrupt, but as traitors to their own nation. And these people... These were the people who corrupted others. They weren't just corrupt. They corrupted others. In fact, this system was so bad, Caesar Augustus abolished it because it wasn't just in Israel. All over the empire, people despised tax collectors. So, for Jesus to come and say, those corrupt, vile people are nearer the kingdom than you are. That, that would have been shocking. That would have been shocking. But the reason is, is they lived with regret. They already had taken that step. They already acknowledged or had some sense that their life had gone terribly wrong. That they had made so many mistakes. And so when John the Baptist came and preached... The tax collectors came to him in Luke chapter 3 saying, what do we need to do? And John said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to do. Just stop living the way you were living. Zacchaeus, that wee little man, was a tax collector. And when he came to meet Christ and had Christ in his home, he repented. And he said that he would give back four times whatever he had taken from people. So, so that just gives you some sense of the magnitude of the extortion. He had enough leftover money to give back four times what he had taken. Even some prostitutes, apparently, had heard the message. They had heard about Jesus' power. They had, they had seen His miracles. They would have hovered around the edges of some of the crowds listening to what he taught. They probably didn't feel welcome enough to sort of make their way up to the front, but they would have listened, and the people in the crowd probably would have assumed that those women on the outside weren't really interested in any of this religious stuff. But they heard, and they went home, and they pondered. Until one day in Luke 7, Luke says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in one of the Pharisees' house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind Jesus at His feet, weeping, she started to wet His feet with her tears and to wipe them with her hair and kissed His feet and anointed Him with ointment. Here she is. She can't, she can't even express her gratitude enough. 
And she was expressing her grief and her regret at her life of sin. So Jesus says to the people in the room, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are all forgiven. Because she loved much. And the one who is forgiven little loves little, but she loves much. They said, who, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus turned to her and said, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. This prostitute, she entered the kingdom before any of these Pharisees did. This is scandalous for people who for so much of their life had given all the right answers, had checked all the right boxes, had performed all the right duties, had assumed that they were closer than everyone else. In fact, they assumed that they were in the kingdom, that they were the favored son. And yet, they had never let the gospel touch their heart. See, it's not about the person who loudly proclaims their religious devotion. It's not about the person who impresses others with all the right answers. That's not genuine faith. Genuine faith, Jesus says, is this humble brokenness that regrets, regrets, regrets all the ways that you have defied God. And so you come to Jesus with an absolute willingness to go wherever He says go. Into the field today, you'll go. Wherever you are commanded to go, you obey. Even if you resisted at first. Those are the ones that Jesus loves. Those are the ones that He saves. As He said earlier in Matthew chapter 9, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. And Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Look, if you've got no problems, I mean, if you, everything's just great and you kind of like feel like you've just kind of kept your life together and all that, that's, you know, hurrah for you. But that's not what Jesus came for. He came for the people who came to realize they are sick in their heart in their mind, in their life, they're sick. They have spiritual, emotional, eternal problems. And because of all that, because of everything they've done in their life and their sin and all that, they turn to Jesus and what they find is healing. What they find is forgiveness. True repentance. They transfer their trust to Him. They acknowledge all of His truth. They transfer their trust to Him. There might be some of you today who are here and you, you've been on that fringe because you have just assumed that you didn't have the early response. You didn't have all the right answers. You look around, all these people, they all seem to have it put together and you just sort of assume that you're not one of those elect chosen ones. You're, uh, you're willing to acknowledge that Jesus was maybe the Messiah. You're willing to acknowledge that uh, the gospel works for some people, but you haven't transferred your life to him. Jesus is telling you it's not too late. It's not too late. 
if you are willing to humble yourself, you're willing to acknowledge your brokenness, then just turn and go to the field. Just do what He says. Just transfer all of your life to Him. And He'll say the same to you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Father, we're grateful for the clarity of this little story. It is helpful for us in a a context where so many people are so eager to proclaim their virtues, their righteousness. We live in a society that does not want to acknowledge its sin. But we, we are those who came to You with deep sorrow and regret. We're those who pondered and reflected how we had responded at first and with shame, with our heads hung down, we decided we had a change of heart. We decided to give you our life. And we're so grateful that you received us. I pray for those who are here today, those who are sick and they know that they're sick, I pray that they would come to the healer, the one who gives life, and that they would trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.